After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. Welcome to this week's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me is my colleague, Peter Flaherty. Millie is off again this week. I I have had this week circled on the calendar, really since the SEC uh, schedule came out, Peter. We this weekend get LSU and Tennessee. And while this is not the one versus two matchup it was uh, in the preseason, I'm very excited about it. I think a lot of people are very excited about it. I kind of hate that it's happening at the same time as Major League Baseball's opening day because this feels like uh, a college baseball series that, you know, it really has the the potential to capture uh, the the baseball attention, like, overall, like, with some of the the guys that uh, are going to be on the field this weekend in Baton Rouge. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about Texas, which currently has the longest winning streak in the country. The Horns are up to 15 straight wins uh, going into an important series at Oklahoma State. We're going to talk a little bit of Big 12 in addition to, uh, to the Horns. And uh, we're going to talk about some surprises out West. The Pac-12, three weeks into the season, has uh, has dealt us some some surprise teams at the at the top of the standings, and so we're going to uh, get into all of that today and more here on uh, the Baseball America College podcast. So, Peter, it's uh, you know we're, we're on the eve of opening day uh, in Major League Baseball, but I'm glad to be here talking uh, college baseball with you. I was going to say I couldn't agree more. While it is an exciting time with the MLB season starting tomorrow, I guess it'll it when as you're listening to this, it'll probably be underway, but. I've had this LSU Tennessee series just like you have, and it seems like the whole college baseball world has. I've had it circled on my calendar since the schedule dropped. It kind of has a feel of a super fight in Las Vegas, and I'm and I'm and I cannot wait to see how it all unfolds. Yeah, it's uh, it's going to be a fun one. This is a, actually just a great sports week. Period. You know, you got the Final Four going on. I'm actually here in Baton Rouge now, and uh, the the LSU women are in the Final Four. They've got billboards up. Uh, promoting that and obviously the the men's final four has uh more of a baseball feel to it than a basketball feel with you got miami and yukon fau and san diego state these are these are schools i associate more with baseball and uh, of course major league baseball uh is starting as well but we're here we're here to talk college baseball and i it, we we have to just basically start with this LSU Tennessee series there were some exciting things that happened over the weekend among them LSU uh played Arkansas in a really exciting series and um Texas swept Texas Tech but uh with uh with such a big series and it, and it starts on Thursday uh hopefully you're you're listening to this uh, on on your way to work or on the way home to work home from work and you can uh you can catch it tonight LSU and Tennessee came into the the season as the number one and the number two teams in the country. We mentioned before, you know, we've talked about how Tennessee has had some early season struggles. They went one and two on opening weekend in the MLB tournament out in Arizona. And they, then they, of course, were swept at Missouri two weeks ago, but they got back on track with a, a sweep of Texas A&M at home last weekend. And they come into this weekend ranked 11th in uh, in the Baseball America Top 25. So it's not a one versus two showdown, but it is still a big time uh, showdown on the field and in the rankings. And of course, this is also a massive showdown in terms of prospects. Uh, the The amount of talent that will be on the field is kind of unbelievable. This is going to be uh, there, there's going to be so much scouting heat at, at this series. Uh, when you've got Paul Skeens and Chase Dolander going at it on Thursday night, that's the top two pitchers in this year's draft class. Uh, you have Chase Burns starting for Tennessee on Friday. He's potentially the best pitcher in next year's draft class. And if it's not him, it might be Thatcher Hurd. 
uh, who is an LSU player, of course. And then you also have Dylan Cruz, the uh, right now the the very much the favorite to be the number one overall draft pick, uh, certainly the top position player taken, and he's hitting above five hundred. Just uh, everywhere you look. I, you know, and that doesn't even get into some of the underclassmen like Tommy White and, you know, everywhere you look, there there's just going to be talent on the field. I was going to say, regardless of draft class, um, whether you're looking at 2023 with Dolander, Skeens, Cruz, Jared Dickey, Zane Denton, guys of that, Trey Morgan, guys like that. I mean, you look at 24 with Burns and Hurd and then even like Pax and Kling, obviously, too. And I mean, I'm going to leave someone out just because both of these rosters are, are so deep and even 2025 with Chase Shores, um, Gavin, or, excuse me, Jared Jones. Um, it's, I can't remember. Brady yeah. Brady Neal. Um, there, I can't remember the last time there was this much talent up and down each roster. And the fact that they're each playing good baseball right now, Tennessee had a nice bounce back series. Um, this past weekend with a sweep of Texas A&M and LSU is obviously rolling. They had that impressive series win over Arkansas and then a midweek tune up against Grambling last night. So they're on a collision course to see each other. And I, I can't overstate how fired up I am to watch it all unfold, particularly tomorrow night with Dolander versus Skeens. I think the, the hype around that pitching matchup is very well warranted. Um, and I, again, I just, I'm, I'm very looking forward to seeing how each arm navigates the respective lineup with which they will be matched up against. Well, let's dive into that pitch and matchup here, uh, for a second, Peter, you've got Paul Skeens, uh, uh, starting for LSU. He currently ranks second in the nation in ERA. He's, um, four and Four and oh, five, five and oh, five and oh. Now, uh, with an 072 ERA, he has 71 strikeouts against seven walks in 37 innings. This is a guy that was the nation's like top two way player the last two years at Air Force, transfers to LSU this year, uh, hasn't picked up a bat this spring and has only helped his draft stock. Uh, he now, I think, is regarded as the top pitcher in the draft class. He's a player that the Pirates are considering at number one overall, and he has absolutely, you know, solidified, doesn't even begin to describe what he's done for LSU's rotation. He's given them the truest of true Friday guys, a guy that, you know, last week, Arkansas coach Dave Van Horn said he'd never seen a better college pitcher. Uh, the week before, Jim Schlossnagel compared him to Steven Strasburg. He's probably not the first person to make that comparison. He will not be the last person to make that comparison. Uh, this guy, you know, Paul Skeens, is uh, is the real deal. And, and he, what, he's, what he's bringing to, to the LSU staff just cannot be overstated. On the other side, you have Chase Dolander, the uh, SEC Pitcher of the Year uh, a season ago, a guy that coming into the season was the the projected first pitcher uh, to be drafted. He has not had the same level of success as Paul Skeens has, but nobody is going to doubt Dolander's talent. You know, on any given night, he could absolutely turn it on. We just have also seen teams. Uh, get to him this year in a way that we hadn't seen that happen a year ago. Missouri had a fair amount of success against Chase Dolander. Like that's relative success. You know, we're, we're expecting an awful lot from him. And when he doesn't live up to it, of course, uh, you know, that's a little bit unfair to him. But when we look at this pitching matchup, what, what are you looking at from kind of a scouting perspective? And, and then, you know, like, I, like, like, I, I guess everyone right now, I shouldn't say everyone, most people, certainly at least within Baseball America, the people that we're talking to mostly, seem to prefer Paul Skeens. But how big is that gap in your mind right now, Peter? Right. So I think with Dolander, he came into this year, I think, the most hyped draft pitcher or the most with the pitcher with the most hype in this year's draft class. And some of the expectations were very hard, almost impossible to live up to. So whenever he has kind of a dud outing against Missouri or whatever it might be, I think it gets a little bit overblown. Um, and if you look at what he's done so far this year, the numbers are great. I mean, he's striking out, he struck out 53 guys in 34 innings, only walked eight. 
Um, 390 ERA, which is a, a bit higher than it was last year, but he's still, I think, I mean, for my money's worth, I think he's the second best pitcher in the country, only behind Paul Skeens. And I think that's just because of how unbelievable Skeens has been. We heard all fall about the development of his slider. Um, his velo even took a tick up with um, with the help of pitching coach Wes Johnson. Um, I mean, now he's 98 to 102 and holding that type of velocity, at least holding upper 90s velocity for the entirety of his outing. His slider's a plus pitch. He's begun to throw his changeup a little bit more, which is also a plus pitch um, these last couple of outings. And he is as much of a future number one, number two type starter as I've seen in some time. And what stands out to me as well, on top of the natural ability he has, and I've noticed it a bit, especially this year in, in pitching in some of these bigger environments, is the mound presence that he has. It is clear that he's very confident in his stuff. He's he's completely locked in on the mound. And I think a lot of that comes from obviously confidence in his own ability and what he's what he's got in his arsenal. But there's that service academy aspect, that mental toughness aspect that I think is one of a kind. And so I think that's a really unique aspect of Paul Skeens' game, and it's going to carry him a while in his career. And so I think that with with what he's done so far, he's the clear number one pitcher in this year's draft class. I wouldn't necessarily say there's a huge gap, like an enormous gap between him and Dolander, but I would go as far to say that Paul Skeens is the clear number one just because of just the sheer stuff he's got. And Dolander's fastball has been – it's that's kind of been his calling card. Um, last year was 95 to 99. It's It hasn't been as loud as that, but the shape is still really good. There was one start in particular – and I think it was against Gonzaga. And Gonzaga is a team that if you look at their record, you're not going to be blown away with. But they're a really good ball club, I think. They have a good lineup with Cade McGee, Enzo Apodaca, guys like that. That was a start I was really impressed with him because he had solid arm side run on his fastball. He was able to harness it. He was up to 97. He held it. Slider was a plus pitch. And so he's got that legit stuff in the tank. But again, I just look at what Skeens has done, what he's got. And it's hard to not say he's the number one pitcher. So it's going to be one versus two going up against each other. I'm selfishly hoping for a pitcher's duel, as I'm sure everyone else is, because I think that would just be an absolute joy to watch and an absolute masterclass on both sides of the baseball. So again, I, I think number one is Skeens. I don't, it's tough to argue against it at this point. He's established kind of now a track record with five starts. He's striking out almost two guys an inning, only has walked four. Um, so I, I think he's the clear number one right now, but it's going to be fascinating to see. I can't remember the last time that there was a, a pitching matchup like this. Uh, another, you know, game series opener pitchers duel would be, uh, would be outstanding, but keeping down the LSU offense or the Tennessee offense for that matter is a, uh, is a tall task, uh, with LSU. It starts with Dylan Cruz, who is the best hitter in the country by far right now. <laughs> like, I don't even know who number two uh, would be. It's, it's unbelievable. He's hitting, wait for this, 542. We've played 25 games. He's hitting 542, 667, 988. It is, uh, it's remarkable. He has 10 doubles, nine homers. Uh, like, I don't even know the last time we saw a player of his caliber do anything remotely like this obviously as as the season goes on you would expect that he won't keep hitting 542 uh on the other hand he has multiple hits in every sec game but one so far i know that that's a sample size of six but in five out of the six sec games he's played this year he has multiple hits he's not just doing this against light competition he's uh he's just absolutely locked in right now and uh you know peter i i am starting to wonder and this is complicated because Tommy White hits behind him and Tommy White has like 10 home runs this year and we all know what he's capable of. Uh, but I'm starting to wonder, is it time to treat Dylan Cruz like 2003 Barry Bonds? You know, <laughs> I, I, I say that like Arkansas did not walk him last weekend. They walked him like once on the weekend. A&M definitely took more of a like let's not let Dylan Cruz beat us approach. It didn't work out for either team. They both lost the series. So you know, we've seen both approaches. Uh, there are positives and negatives that come with both. If you start putting Dylan Cruz just on base, 
you know, with the depth of LSU's lineup behind him, things get complicated pretty quickly, potentially. Uh, but on the other hand, if you, you know, it, it, he's just going to be difficult to get out no matter what you do. Yeah, I was going to say, you can take that approach and it limits the damage he's able to do. But then behind him, like you said, you're going to have to deal with Tommy White, Jared Jones, Brady Neal, Paxton Kling. And he, like, this is kind of what what the what everyone was discussing preseason with LSU was you can't pitch around any of these guys because of because the supporting cast is also so good. Tommy White is going to be one of the first hitters taken off the board next year's draft. It's kind of just like you got to hold your nose and and go at these guys and approach them and approach them in a way that's going to limit their damage. And I think with that being said, Hunter Holland was outstanding last weekend um, in doing so. He threw 5.1, five and a third scoreless innings. Um, I think it was seven strikeouts and only three hits allowed. And we've seen LSU's one little Achilles heel has been they've they haven't been as great against left-handed pitching. And Hunter Holland, like you had mentioned, is one of the tops in this year's class. But he was throwing quality strikes all afternoon. He kept hitters off balance. He had advanced pitch sequencing. I think it's with Dolander, where his fastball is kind of his calling card, it's going to be I'm, – I'm very curious to see how he's going to approach this lineup. And I know Coach Vitello and company are going to have him as prepared as as anyone in the country to go up against this against these guys. But – um, I wouldn't be shocked to see him try and mix in some more sliders. Um, and especially against lefties, he's going to have to have that type of command on his two seam fastball, or at least the arm side run that he's got that he did against Gonzaga. Because I mean, we saw it with Dylan Cruz and obviously Tommy White's got lightning quick hands and bat speed. Jared Jones has, looks like some of the most raw power of anyone in the country for my money's worth. So I mean, if you're going to try and attack up with Cruz again, you're not going to be Dylan Cruz, I don't think, with a fastball. His hands are so quick. He's got thunderous bat speed. Tommy White, the same. So everyone on Tennessee's pitching staff this weekend and and any pitching staff in the country going forward is going to have to have very advanced command and very advanced feel for their secondaries on that day just so that they can throw it for strikes and keep them kind of guessing. Because if any of these hitters get comfortable in the box, it's it's I don't want to say a lost cause for the opposing team, but they're a team that they can beat you in a variety of ways. They can get into a shootout with you and hang 20 runs. They can also they're also very well equipped for a pitcher's duel with the starting pitching they've got in the bullpen they have. So you're going to have to have your pitcher be near perfect to 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 beat these guys. And I think if there's anyone in the country who is best suited to go up against them, it's it's Chase Dolander. So it's going to be very interesting to see. And then probably second best is someone like Chase Burns who will go on Saturday or go on Friday now. Um, so it's going to be very fascinating to see both how LSU deals with their biggest challenge by far to date. And then also how these Tennessee pitchers can rise to the occasion. You mentioned uh, LSU's mild Achilles heel of, uh, <laughs> of left-handed pitching Part of the the reason why that stands out is just they absolutely mash right-handers, which makes this an intriguingly difficult matchup for Tennessee after Mizzou swept Tennessee. Steve Beezer, Mizzou's coach, said that he felt like Missouri actually just kind of matched up better against Tennessee than some other teams because of how right-handed the Tennessee pitching staff is and how well uh, you know, Mizzou can match up against that because they have a lot of left-handed hitters. Now, LSU is not heavily left-handed. They will typically run three left-handers out there at least, but it's not It's not like the whole lineup is left-handed. So you're not gaining a massive platoon advantage by putting a left-hander on the mound. And Dylan Cruz and Tommy White, the two best hitters LSU has, are right-handed. But all that being said, like they still have hit better against righties than lefties. And Tennessee is going to throw three right-handed starters at them. So I'll be curious to see how they navigate that. Tennessee doesn't have a ton of lefties on the roster. I think they have four left-handed relievers. I assume that we'll see them. And that counts Sanders Seacrest, who mostly serves as a midweek starter, but only through an inning and two-thirds uh, on Tuesday night. So maybe he'll be able to, to work in out of the bullpen as well. Tennessee has used him both 
at, you know, after pitching in the midweek, also on the on the weekend. Uh, he's done that this year. So I, I assume that we'll see him at some point this weekend. Uh, but mostly their lefties are one inning guys. I don't want to label them as lefty only guys, but they're they're not. You know, Hagen Smith right now, Arkansas is using him as a multi-inning relief ace. Like that's not what Tennessee has in terms of lefties. So I will be curious to see how Tony Vitello and Frank Anderson go about attacking the uh, the LSU lineup with their pitching staff. And obviously Tennessee would prefer to play this as a low scoring series, like their advantage like most weekends is going to be on the mound, but their offense is good. <laughs> like they, it's different from last year. It's maybe not as high. It's definitely not as high profile. It's maybe not as high powered when you look at the home runs, but uh, Blake Burke already has 10 homers. Uh, Griffin Merritt uh, came in from Cincinnati and, and has hit pretty well. And uh, you know, Christian Moore is out there doing his thing and Maui Yahuna has, uh, you know, he's there in large part because of his glove, but he's also a good hitter. Like this is a lineup that, that can do some damage. And so I, it's going to be, uh, it, it's not going to be easy for LSU on the mound either. Right. And and you bring up a great point, I think, just going back to the pitching with a guy like Xander Seacrest. I think you look up and down Tennessee's roster, you see there are three great starting pitchers with Dolander, Burns, and Beam. Their lineup that, that we're getting into is is very good as well. But I think someone like Xander Seacrest could be an X factor and one of the reasons why they could win a series like this down in Baton Rouge. If he can come in on Friday or a rubber game on Saturday and give you, I don't know, three to three and two thirds, even if you stretch him out for four, which would be his longest outing of the year. If he can give you three quality innings in relief in the middle innings, that could be a huge difference maker for the Vols. It could keep the LSU Tigers lineup off balance. He's a soft tossing lefty, big breaking ball. He's got that funky stuff and command of all three of his pitches that has kind of been a bugaboo for LSU. So that was a great point with Seacrest. Um, but getting into the Tennessee lineup, again, it's not as deep as LSU's. Nobody's is, and that's a very unfair bar to, to an unfair standard to hold everyone else to, but Christian Moore has been great. Blake Burke has some of the most raw power in the country. Zane Denton has come on as of late. Jared Dickey's a guy who dealt with injuries last year, but has now played, you know, he's stacking together a full season and he's been very good. And then obviously Maui Ahuna has come on as of late. So there are five to six, seven guys that are also very tough to pitch to in the, in, in the volunteers lineup. And this is going to be, I, I, I don't want to say tough is because that Arkansas lineup is darn good so far, but I think on paper, at least from a prospect standpoint and even performance standpoint, this is, this will, this will be, this will be Skeens' biggest test of the year. And I, and I think going up against more Burke Denton, Dickey and Ahuna is, is going to be very difficult. And these are all guys who have experience playing in these big stages. Obviously Ahuna is a little bit new to it, but Denton played in the SEC last year, and then you look at more Burke and Dickey, and this is not going to be an environment in which they're just going to turtle up and and shell up. They're they're going to be up for it. This whole team will be up for it, and so it is. It's no no easy task for Paul Skeen. So this Volunteers lineup again, while I don't think that they're going to want to get into a kind of punch for punch game with Tennessee on offense, they, they can hang some runs on, they can hang some runs themselves. So it's, it's really just strength versus strength versus strength in this series across the board. I talked last week about, you know, Arkansas having to go on the road for the first time uh, and it having to be an Alex box and how would they react to that? And, you know, I don't want to say that they reacted poorly and that's why LSU won the series. And also it was a little bit weird because the weather, messed with the schedule and they played Friday afternoon, not Friday night. And then they played a doubleheader on Saturday. Uh, and this is not Tennessee's first road series. They went to Missouri. Uh, they also went all the way out to Arizona to play on opening weekend. So they, they have some road experience. The, the Saturday game, that opening weekend at Grand Canyon actually was like truly lit. Uh, Grand Canyon is low key. One of the better, atmospheres certainly outside the sec so on a little bit different scale it's a smaller ballpark grand canyon it's a smaller school actually i say that i don't they probably have a ton of students at grand canyon that campus is large anyway um <laughs> the 
the the atmosphere that they're going to see though this weekend is different and maybe you know for for most uh most teams i would say you know that's probably a big advantage lsu they get the home crowd behind them uh we expect the box to be rocking all weekend like how are that how's how's a team gonna come in and interact with that but tennessee kind of feeds on stuff like that i feel like i I will be curious to see how they handle it. This is a little bit different. Like last year's team was older. This year's team, especially in the lineup, is is a bit younger. But we also have seen Tennessee absolutely feed off of crowds, whether that's positive or negative energy uh, coming at them in the past. And so I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, you know, I expect everyone, no one's going to need help getting up for this series, either LSU or Tennessee. Maybe that's going to rev the engines a little bit more for the Vols this weekend than playing uh, you know, in a, a, a no disrespect to Missouri, but it was cold and windy and like, you know, it, the box is different than Columbia, Missouri. Right, exactly. And we kind of saw it last year with Tennessee um, on a smaller scale. I think the concerns were obviously less, but they had gone to Kentucky and it was a really cold, rainy, windy series. And I think they lost two of three and it just kind of seemed, they just kind of seemed flat um, and, Again, that's no no shot taken at Missouri or Kentucky or anywhere, but the box, like you said, is not an environment that you need help getting up for. And as I touched on and you touched on, this Tennessee team does feed off of hostile environments. They love being the villain. They love knowing that they're kind of the bad boys of college baseball. And they play with a huge chip on their shoulder, regardless of their status as a prospect with some of these guys and with actually all of their guys and they, it, it's going to be really fun. I don't think that it's going to be chippy. I, it's obviously going to be a very well hard played series there. It, it's going to be highly contested. So again, going into the box, if there's any team, I think that's well suited for an environment like this, it is a, a, a coach Vitello led Tennessee team that, that has the guys that it does on their roster because they are more than up for this challenge and chopping at the bit to prove themselves and say, okay, you know what? We may have not gotten off to the start that we were hoping for or that people thought we were, but make no mistake about it. Like we're a national championship team and we're about this. Like we're just kind of about it. So I'm, I'm excited to see how they handle it and it's, it's going to be a lot of fun. Hopefully everyone can, uh, can tune into that one Thursday night and then, uh, Friday and Saturday as well uh, here in Baton Rouge should be a, uh, a great show of college baseball, of, of baseball just generally. So uh, check that out. And uh, we're going to uh, move on here. Uh, we're going to talk a little, little Texas, a little Big 12, a little Pac-12 here in a second. But first, check this out. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match. With Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, Peter, we talked about one UT. Let's go to the other UT, the Horns. Uh, down in Austin, the Horns have gone real hot. Uh, they've now won 15 straight. It's the longest winning streak, uh, longest active winning streak in the country. And, you know, like 
prior to this last weekend when they played Texas Tech, I was aware that Texas was winning a bunch of games. I just wasn't paying a whole lot of attention to it because it wasn't coming against premium competition. But then they started Big 12 play with a sweep of Texas Tech, which of course had just won a series against Oklahoma State. And I basically declared them like the Big 12 favorites. And the Horns absolutely took it to the Red Raiders. And uh, they, they get a sweep. Then they went up to College Station on Tuesday and got a win there. And they, uh, they're riding a ton of momentum right now. Uh, I Coming into the season, I really liked the idea of Texas. Um, but I, I just had questions. And, and I think what you saw in the first three weeks of the season when they went 0-3 at uh, the tournament in Arlington and then won a series against a pretty good Indiana team and then lost a series against a Cal State Fullerton team that might be a regional caliber team. Like they're definitely going to compete in the Big West at a level that we haven't seen in the last couple of years. But it was it was still just wasn't a good start for Texas. Um, they came back home. They you know were able to figure some things out. Their lineup. They they switched some things around. They've absolutely gotten things going offensively. They're still pitching at a high level. They cleaned some things up defensively. And now they look like a team that can absolutely, by by virtue of sweeping Texas Tech, they have proven they can compete with anyone in the Big 12, I think. Uh, But this is also now looking like a team that almost anything is on the table for them, it feels like. Uh, It it doesn't feel like they're, they're taking a step back. It feels like they have another really, really talented team there in Austin. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And we are sitting here after that 11 inning loss to Cal state Fullerton that would resulted in a series loss for him kind of looking at their next stretch of games. And it was Sam Houston Mercer and then series against Manhattan, New Orleans and a, a, a midweek series with North Dakota state. And we were kind of saying, okay, it's, it's baseball and anything can happen. So this might be a little unfair, but they kind of have to go however many games it was, you know, nine and nine or 10 in a row to, to, to get this, to get to correct course and they not only did that, they continued that into their Texas Tech series and then last night against AM. And like you said, they've got a 15-game winning streak, longest active one in the country. And and they've looked really good doing it. Um, they've they beat Texas Tech soundly, who I still think is a good team, even though they've they're a whole separate issue. They've lost five of six, but um, I still think that they're a good team. That's that's no easy series to win. And the Longhorns did it in pretty commanding fashion. And they're, they're a veteran laden veteran clad lineup with Eric Kennedy leading the charge. He's hitting 374. He's actually tapped into some of his power this year, which has been really helpful for coach Pearson company, 10 doubles and seven home runs. And then Porter Brown came from TCU. He's a redshirt junior. He's hitting 360 eight doubles and six home runs. Garrett Gilmet came from USC, nine doubles, three home runs, one of which being the walk-off to clinch their series sweep of Texas Tech. And then a guy who's actually been really impressive after seeing kind of inconsistent playing time earlier in his career is Peyton Brown. And he, he'll he play Peyton Powell. Peyton Powell, yes, Peyton Powell, excuse me. And he'll be corner infielder for him, DH, um, but in his, t- in his 77 at bats, he's 32 for 77 hitting 416. He's actually walking almost three times as much as he's striking out with 17 walks to six K's. So they're an experienced group on the mound. They're throwing really well. Obviously Lucas Gordon has been the guy for now a couple of seasons. One six ERA came in last night against AM out of the bullpen through an inning two K's Charlie Hurley has been really good as well. So like you said, this is looking like a team that, again, early in the season, we were kind of like, okay, it would be really nice for them to kind of correct course and make a regional. Um, but at this point, like you said, they're in pretty good position to for a host, I think, at this point. Um, they're going to have to continue playing good baseball, but they, hosting is certainly not out of the question. And then once they – if they were able to kind of keep this rolling and, and make a regional – Nothing's off the table, like you said. And so this will be, this is a really intriguing club. And this weekend, they've got another really good test, which we'll probably get into in a little bit at Oklahoma State. So a really impressive stretch for the Longhorns. And I think it's safe to say that, that, that they're, they've corrected course and, and they're here to stay. 
So you mentioned Powell and I, uh, I really love this, this story. And just like, we don't talk enough about Texas and David Pierce's teams as being like good at development. I think, you know, when we, when I think about that anyway, at least I, I think about like Louisville and how, you know, they consistently, you know, develop guys so that maybe they don't play a ton as a freshman, but by the time they're sophomores or juniors, like they are in position to contribute in big, big roles. Like it's not just always guys come in who are really good, play as freshmen, and then, you know, they matriculate. It's not like that at Louisville and it's not like that at Texas. Payne Powell is like, this is this is going to be real lofty. He was an All-American last year, but in some ways he's this year's Murphy Staley. Like Murphy Staley last year was just a guy who'd been in the program a long time and had been, you know, a part-time player. And then all of a sudden last year he hits 367 with 19 home runs. And again, like All-American. That's a lot to put on Penn Powell. I'm not here to say he's going to finish as an All-American, but he is, he's become like this crucial part of the team. And that's a guy that we weren't talking about coming into the year uh, because for three years in Texas, he hadn't been more than a, a part-time player. And so the fact that Texas is able to, you know, incorporate some of these transfers, they, they have Porter Brown, they have Gary Gamet, they have a returner in Eric Kennedy and Dylan Campbell, uh, the, and, and Mitchell Daly that, that gives them some continuity. And then they have a guy like Payne Powell coming into the picture. Uh, and, and they have, they have some freshmen that they're playing they, they, they it's a, it's a well-balanced team, but I, I just am consistently impressed by the development aspect uh, that goes on in that program. And then the other point I want to make is that Texas is doing all of this without Tanner Witt, uh, who, you know, was voted a preseason All-American by ML- by MLB scouting directors is a potential first round pick and is still trying to work his way back from Tommy John surgery. Uh, I don't know when we'll see Tanner with this season, but I anticipate seeing him. And the fact that Texas is doing everything without him means that he doesn't have to come back in and be a savior to this pitching staff, which has been great all year long. Like they don't need him to come in and put him in the rotation right away. They can just, bring him along and and use him as a reliever like they did when he was a freshman and he was really, really good in that role or they can use him in whatever role they want. But the point is like, he would just be a straight up addition. He would not be a, Oh, we have to use him to solve this problem. And, you know, Lucas Gordon has been great at the front of the rotation. They've had guys step up throughout. And if, uh, if they're able to continue pitching at this level, uh, you know, it, it, that that's just been that's been there from day one for this team. It was really the offense and to a certain extent, the defense that was letting them down. But uh, the, the pitching, even without a projected first round pick, uh, has been this good. That that really stands out to me. Yeah, and that's a great point. And honestly, it's one I forgot um, when I was discussing this Longhorns team and and they were well equipped to for a run even without wit. But the fact that they're going to get him back at some point this year. Still TBD when, but again, like you said, it takes a lot of the load off of Tanner Witt to come back and kind of be like in the mindset of, okay, I've got to go out and give five to seven scoreless right away. They can ease him in out of the bullpen. They can open up with him on a midweek game for a couple innings at a time. So David Pierce and and, and company, they're they're pushing all the right buttons lately. And, and this is a tight-knit group, like you said, They've played together for the most part for some time. They have obviously the key transfers with um, Porter Brown and, and Garrett Gilmet and others, but um, this will be a very interesting team come the postseason. It's looking like they will they will make a regional. So I'm excited to see how the rest of the Big Twelve slate unfolds, especially this weekend against Oklahoma State, and then and then see what they can do come come May and June. So the there were a couple of results in the Big 12 last weekend that really set up this weekend to be very exciting. One of them was Texas sweeping uh, Texas Tech, and now they go on the road to uh, to play Oklahoma State. The other was the TCU uh, got off the mat after losing their uh, their series against Oklahoma, and, and TCU now looks like they might have turned a corner. Maybe I mean they've been so up and down. We'll see, but they now play. Uh, in Lubbock against Texas Tech this weekend. So two really big series among 
what looks like the best teams in the Big 12. We'll see West Virginia, what, what West Virginia has to say about that as they get into Big 12 play starting this weekend. Uh, they've been quite good as well. But the, the Big 12 does seem to start, it, like already it seems like it's it's stratifying. And these four teams uh, that are playing each other this weekend certainly look like they're in the top group. And we can argue whether there's another team in that top group with them. But uh the fact that we get two series like that this weekend, I think is really fun. It's going to be tough for both of the road teams. Stillwater and Lubbock are difficult places, uh, but Texas is hotter than anyone. And uh, like you said, Peter, TCU uh, gets to to go play tech at a time when tech is uh, tech's reeling a little bit, having lost against swept at Texas. And then they lose in the midweek to New Mexico and the Lobos are good this year, but that's uh it's still a, a, a time of, of, of a little bit of turmoil there for, for the Red Raiders. Yeah, I touched on it a little bit in talking about Texas, but they have lost. They've lost five of six. They did salvage that. Um, they lost the um, with their one win being the Sunday game against Oklahoma State. But this is a team that I think they're really going to enjoy being back at home um, in Lubbock because in true road games, they're 0-4. At home, they're 17-2. and And the ball flies there. It's a park that they obviously know inside and out. Their lineup is very high powered. You've got Gavin Cash, who's still playing well. And then Kevin Bazell, who went five for five against New Mexico. He's also leading the charge. And so they can really, really hit. And for as well as TCU is playing, and I think they have turned a corner. I think after that series loss against Oklahoma, that was a wake up call. And they've since won six in a row. And, I think for as well as TCU is playing, I would definitely give the edge and and kind of favor Tech in a series like this. I think losing five of six, that extra inning loss against New Mexico, or that walk-off loss against New Mexico yesterday, I think was a real wake-up call. If that wasn't, then I, I'm not really sure what would be. But I think that they're going to kind of push the reset button on that flight back from New Mexico really enjoy being back home and kind of hit their way back into getting on a roll that we saw them be on at the beginning of the season. Yeah. Tech is just a different team in Lubbock. That's uh, something that's been true for, it feels like several years now, but certainly the last few years that they almost impossible to beat in Lubbock. But if you get them outside of it, whether we're talking neutral site or true road environments, uh, they are very much gettable. And while that's, tough for them uh it does mean that the big 12 race is going to be way more entertaining because if they were just going to run away with it having been oklahoma state that would have been uh that would have been kind of sad <laughs> um so we're not going to get that we're going to get a real honest to god race and it'll probably go down to the end of the the season again like it always does the the kind of condensed format of the schedule uh always always makes for a, a good one there and I, uh, I'm really interested in both of these series. The way Anthony Silva, TCU's uh, you know, blue chip shortstop, has been hitting lately. He's got three homers in the last couple games, and you know he missed two games in the, the Oklahoma series. And since he's been back, he's on a six game hitting streak and uh, just has been playing really well. And uh, for for him to be doing that, for for them to you know be you know having uh, you know, some of their other key key guys round into form camp brown has been really good of late he threw seven scoreless at kansas uh you know just getting some of that going for the frogs i i I think is uh really significant here as we move more towards the middle of the season yeah absolutely and and you've also you've got to talk about i think with um with tcu Braden taylor and i know in looking at his numbers people kind of be like you know he's only hitting 258 i think it is with um, three doubles and eight home runs, but he's walking nearly as much as he's striking out. He's got as good of an approach as anyone up there. And he had a really good midweek game yesterday against UT Arlington. Um, so if, if he can kind of start to hit his stride and get hot, which I think he inevitably will again, he's too good of a player in my mind not to. Um, that's going to be a huge boost for the Frogs. And then on the mound, Cam Brown has been really good with a 208 ERA. Um, so has fresh freshman, um, Cole Klecker's also been really good. Um, and so if 
I think that their pitching staff, even though it's almost impossible to pitch in Lubbock, the ball just, it, it always seems to a fly naturally. And then the wind is always, there seems to be a jet stream blowing straight out to, to left center. So it's really impossible to pitch there or very, very tough to pitch there, but their pitching staff is up for it. So again, TCU's on a roll a and at, or yeah, TCU's on a roll. Tech's kind of headed in that opposite direction. And this weekend will be a really good series because I think if TCU can somehow go in there and steal two of three, that will be very, very loud. And then I think it would be time to kind of get closer to pressing the panic button on Texas tech, because if they were to lose two of three, then they'd be sitting at three and six in the big 12 and then 19 and 10 overall. So not totally danger zone, but, but not heading in the right direction. And then TCU would be, sitting near or potentially at the top of the big 12. So it's a conference race that I think will be a five, a five team race when all is said and done with, with TCU tech, UT and Oklahoma state with West Virginia being the fifth of them. And like you said, I think it's pretty safe to assume that it's going to come down to the last weekend who will be the regular season champ. And then that will make for a very entertaining tournament down in Arlington. Yeah. It's too early to get, very concerned about RPIs, but I will note that Texas Tech, as we record this, is sitting at 51. At some point, they got to get that number a little bit better. And winning Big 12 games will help, but you know, if they fall, like you said, if they if they were to lose this series this weekend, fall to three and six in the Big 12, it's not going to help their RPI at all. And things things move quickly here, and they have two really good series wins already with Oklahoma State and uh, and Iowa. And you're not going to take those away. And I don't think tech would be in danger of missing a regional. But if you're trying to host a regional like that, things like that add up. Um, so just uh, another another big series there this weekend in, in Lubbock for uh, for the Red Raiders, uh, finishing uh, a, a really difficult three week stretch to uh, to open conference play. Let's uh, let's go out west. Like I said, the uh, the Pac-12 has uh, really captured my attention because of how uh, how strange it's been to this point. You've got at the top of the standings, tied for first place. Um, although you know, depending on how you sort things, but nobody has more wins in the Pac. Nobody has more Pac-12 wins than Stanford and USC. They are seven and two. Arizona State is five and one. Uh, so they actually have the best conference winning percentage. You got UCLA at six and three, Washington at four and two. Um, you know, in the bottom half of the league now, you've got Oregon State and Arizona tied for seventh with Washington State at uh, at three and six. This is all very early, uh, but Stanford at the top, like we we saw that coming. UCLA six and three, fine, uh, but this this USC, Arizona State, and Washington grouping is uh, is surprising on various levels. Uh, Peters mentioned before that he had Washington as his Omaha sleeper coming into the year. They are coming off of a, a really big series win in Westwood against UCLA. Arizona State, I saw as kind of a bubble team, could kind of go either way uh, coming into the season. They brought, brought in a ton of transfers after last season, which is Willie Bloomquist's first as, as head coach. And they started the year well, and then they went and they went through a really rough patch. They lost a series at Mississippi State. They lost... Uh, you know, they got swept by UC Irvine at home. They lost a couple of midweek games at Oklahoma State. But since then, they've righted the ship. They're coming off of a sweep of Arizona in that rivalry series. And uh, then USC, we've mentioned them before, but this is a team that hasn't been to regionals since 2015. They're now 7-2. and two. Um, They did not start the year terribly well, but they're 7-2 they're and two in Pac-12 play with a series win against Stanford. And they're in a position now, basically, where they just have to play 500 ball the rest of the way in conference play. And that probably will get them into the into regionals. And given that they have a series win against Stanford, I don't think asking them to play 500 ball for the next seven weeks is outlandish. So uh, I, I am just very interested in everything that, that the Pac-12 has to provide right now. It's, uh, uh, you know, on the flip side of it, Oregon State and Arizona are in a bit of trouble now. I don't know if you can project them as regional clubs at this point, which is kind of crazy, but uh, the Pac-12, it's uh, it's an exciting start to the season out there. 
Without a doubt. And I know I, just from a fan of college baseball, from that perspective, it has been exciting seeing these teams like Arizona State turn a corner, Washington obviously come into its own with new head coach Jason Kelly. Same can be said with USC and coach Stankiewicz. But with with talking about USC, they they swept Washington State this weekend. They're 14-9 and nine overall. They and in, in all of their nine games that they've lost, they've been in every single game other than just kind of one dud against Auburn. So they're a really pesky, solid team, a tough one to beat. And I don't want to say that at this point they'd have to play themselves out of a regional because, again, it is early. A lot can happen. It's too, it's it's way too premature to talk about the nuances of, of the tournament. But playing 500 baseball that the way that they have been playing – and how their schedule lines up for the rest of the year. I'm with you in that it's not too big of an ask. And I think whether they make a regional this year or however they finish, unless it's, unless the bottom completely falls out, which I don't think it will. I think that this is, this season was a resounding success for the Trojans and a start of what will hopefully be a really nice run for them. Coach Stankiewicz is an outstanding coach, a really good developer of talent. We saw it at Grand Canyon and I think they're really well positioned for the future. But again, you've got dual sport athlete Austin Overin leading the charge, and then Cole Gabrielson, the veteran outfielder, at 347 and 326 apiece on offense. And then pitching has just been it's it's been solid. It's a little bit like Boston College out east. They they just throw strikes, they their ERA is like four four. Um it's not necessarily super prospecty when looking at it. No one really has you know, that insane draft status or, or blue chip status, but they get outs, they avoid hard contact and they compete in every game. And then if you flip over to Arizona state, they kind of were looking a little bit, it it was looking hairy after that midweek sweep against Oklahoma state. Um, But they've since been on a roll. They've won their last five. And this particular weekend, I think, woke a lot of people up to the caliber team they are with a sweep of Arizona. And then you also combine that with a really quality midweek win over Grand Canyon. So in looking at their schedule with who they've got left, again, similar to similar to USC, their, their month of May is going to be really tough with Stanford, USC, and UCLA being their final three series. But with how they've been playing, they're another team that I think is is hitting their stride at the right time. It's going to be tough for them to play themselves out of a out of a potential regional berth. And offensively, they're led by a couple of freshmen, or at the very least, three underclassmen with sophomore Ryan Campos, freshman Luke Hill, uh, freshman New Contrades, and then obviously blue chip draft prospect Luke Kieschel. So. They're in a good spot for the future as well. And then obviously looking at Washington, I am, I guess, slightly biased because they are my Omaha sleeper, but they've kind they've, they've done what I was projecting them to do, which is they're again, they're a veteran clad lineup a little bit like Texas in how they're made up with, except just less transfers. Um, and then their pitching staff has been outstanding. They've got a great one, two punch of Stu Fleslin and Kiefer Lord who have each had, ample success Kiefer Lord being one of the biggest risers in this year's draft class. So it is awesome to see new blood up at the top of the pack 12. I don't know if this will be how it finishes out. Again, there is a lot of baseball left to be played. UCLA and Stanford are really high quality clubs. And then there's obviously the chance that Oregon state and, and Arizona could each write the ship. But I do think that these are team that that this isn't a fluke. I don't think that any of these teams are there by accident, and I think that they will be competitive all throughout the year. So, again, it's going to be a really fun race, and and I'm looking forward to seeing it play out. Yeah, I am generally of the mind that Stanford and UCLA still finish some combination of one two in this uh, in this thing. I think that when you look at uh, Stanford, they've you know, they've just been about what we would expect. And we've talked about that. Um, and then when you look at UCLA, they've just been very, uh, they, they've had some injury issues that hopefully they're getting over now. Like Ethan Flanagan is due back very soon. He hasn't pitched this year. He was a huge part of what they did last year. And um, Kyle Karras missed last weekend against Washington. And, you know, who knows how that would have gone differently. 
they'd had some of that stuff. And, you know, good, good job by Washington to, to go out and win the game. But, uh, you know, I, I do think as the Bruins get a little bit healthier, they, uh, they might be able to take off a little bit here. We'll see. Uh, but I, yeah, I don't think USC, Arizona State, or Washington are really going anywhere. I think if if UW continues to pitch at the level that they've pitched and with their talent and with Jason Kelly leading the leading the way for them, uh, I, I think that they uh, they absolutely can. This weekend, uh, USC and Arizona State go on the road to play you know two of the worst teams in the in the conference. Meanwhile, UW is at home against Oregon State in what is suddenly like a massive series for Oregon state. Like they are three and six right now in impact 12 play 16 and nine overall, not a whole lot uh, has got right impact 12 play for them. They were swept at Stanford. They lost at home to Washington state. They are coming off of a series win against Cal, but uh, these, these next two weeks on the road, Washington and Oregon, uh, a really big, really big test uh, for the Beavers. And if they are serious about digging out of this hole, they're going to need to to show something over the next two weeks. Yeah, absolutely. And they, they have the personnel to do it. Um, their offense is really good. You've got blue chip freshman Gavin Turley, who he got off to a great start. He is dealing with those growing pains that are, are, are pretty much inevitable for any freshman adjusting to college pitching. The PAC 12 especially is, is a very, high caliber pitching conference, but he does lead the Beavers in home runs with five. And then they have Travis Bazana, who is one of my personal favorites for the 2024 draft class hitting 345. Garrett Forrester has, he's shown that advanced approach and really good swing decisions. He just kind of, the production is a little bit lacking at this point, but he's a guy who's, who's very valuable to them. And then on the mound, they've thrown the ball well. So I think that while they are kind of in a little bit of a a tough spot at three and six, they are sitting at sixteen and nine overall. They got a much needed win today, and they were actually losing for most of the game against Seattle um, in their midweek game. But a series win, I think, against Washington, who we just talked about them in depth. They're one of the better teams in the conference. I think a series win against Washington, and then a series win against Oregon, even just winning one of those two series would be would go a long way for them and I think could kickstart a nice little run. Yeah, I think they almost need to go 500 in uh in these 2 weeks, which is not easy to ask, you know, you're I I'm asking them to to split um Pac-12 road series, but you know, if they don't do that, it's it becomes much harder. USC comes to town, they have to go to Arizona State. Um you know, yeah, they haven't played Utah yet. And yeah, if Arizona doesn't figure things out, like those are two home series that look a lot more attractive, but Oregon State still has to go to UCLA as well. Like the schedule's not easy and um, they they need to, they need some wins. So getting, uh, you know, winning at least one of these next two on the road would be, uh, would be almost mandatory for them if they don't want to have to really hustle down the stretch. So it's uh, not where we thought the Beavers would be at this point, but it uh, it fits in with the the new blood in the in the Pac-12, and um, you know I don't I don't know how many bids the Pac-12 can sustain. It's been a while since they were like a a really robust league in terms of that in terms of that, uh, but you know five six teams from from this conference certainly look like they're regional 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 caliber there it is uh <laughs> and uh they're not the five or six that you would have expected coming into this year because you know sure you might have seen UW coming uh and you could have said something about well you know Arizona State got a lot got a lot better this year and there's so much more talent and okay yeah th- those things were true but I don't think anyone saw USC coming this is uh this is one of, like you said Peter like along with BC it, it feels like those are two of the two similar stories and two of the better stories uh, at least two of the more unexpected stories of success in the first half of uh, of the season. All right, well, we covered a lot of ground today. Uh, I think we're gonna we're gonna leave it there. Uh, we did not get to talk about UConn uh, on this podcast, but UConn joined Texas as, as teams entering the top twenty five this week. Uh, just the two new teams in the Baseball America top twenty five: Texas and UConn. UConn playing really well of late, and uh, I'm sure we'll have have reason to uh, to get to the Huskies as they continue. Uh, they're not even in conference play yet. So uh, a long way to go, of course, uh, for everything. But UConn has, uh, 
has entered the chat and looks like another really solid team uh, in the Northeast. So another one to uh, to watch as, as the season goes forward. We're going to uh, come back here next week with another edition of the Baseball America College podcast. So make sure you're subscribed to the Baseball America podcast on your favorite podcasting app, be that Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts, hit that follow or subscribe button. And uh, rate and review if, uh, if you have a chance that uh, is really appreciated by us. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Peter is at Peter G. Flaherty. And we'll have plenty of commentary throughout the weekend. I'm in Baton Rouge. Uh, and then I'll be finishing the weekend uh, at Louisiana Tech, watching them take on DBU on Sunday. Uh, Peter will have uh, plenty of, of video and, and, and thoughts and analysis from around the country as well. And we'll have uh, everything you want to read over at BaseballAmerica.com, whether we're talking about college uh, or, you know, any of the other levels. Minor leagues getting ready to start soon. And, of course, like we said, uh, big leagues starting this weekend as well. So check out BaseballAmerica.com for all of your all of your uh, levels of baseball and uh, a, a lot to to cover there this time of year. So we will uh, we'll be back here next week. Until then, for Peter, I'm Teddy. Thanks for listening. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois.